All right. Welcome. I'd like to get into things pretty quickly today, so I'll just leave a reminder that for anyone who is new to the show, please pause, jump back, check out the quick intro. It gives a lot of great context about what this project is really about, and you might be a little bit confused if you don't. So I I suggest anyone who's new to, to check that out. That's the intro. It's the very first episode of the show, and it's only about seven minutes long. But for those of you who are returning, just another reminder to subscribe to our Substack newsletter. That's impostorsanonymous.substack.com. We've got some supplemental content coming out on a weekly basis. So it's the best place to keep tabs on the show and, and show your support. It will always be offered for free. So that's always an option. But anyone that is really getting value from the show and feels compelled to support, that's awesome and, and obviously appreciated. But other than that, we'll jump right into it. So thanks for giving this a shot, and I hope you enjoy. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. So welcome to Imposters Anonymous, Alejandro. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Brandon, for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, of course. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling feeling great. Um, it's a kind of vacation, trying to fit some work in, but mostly having a full month of vacation, exploring some towns here in, in Spain, and it has been a very, very interesting and fun experience so far. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that, sounds, that sounds really exciting. I've heard good things, but yeah, I just myself got back about a week or two ago from from vacation in in Puerto Rico, so it was, uh, mm-hmm. it was a much needed much needed time away that I haven't seen in a long time, and uh, probably the longest I've been away from this podcast and, and recording for for uh, I guess in the last six months. So it was kind of nice to, to take a step back, especially mm-hmm. as things have really been ramping up for me kind of personally and professionally it's been super busy so it was it was really nice to to decompress for a few days so i i definitely feel you on that yeah no these vacations are not not for uh, taking a break unfortunately i still have to fit some work in mm. so there are days that it becomes even more stressful that be at home because you need to balance going out and enjoying with working so that's the benefit of remote work that you have the freedom to move but you need to be diligent enough to to fit the work in that right yeah no i I can totally relate on that a lot of my my work now is remote and it's Mm -hmm. it's a it's a challenge in some ways and it's it's a great privilege but like you said sometimes it's there's a flexibility that's at play but sometimes it can add to the stress because you uh Sometimes you take advantage of it, and it's, it's sometimes nice to be like, "Oh, okay, I could, uh, I could spend a day doing something else at any time." But you take a day off, you do something else, and, and the work piles up. So it's yeah. <laughs> it's always yeah. a trade off, and uh, you know, there certainly was a lot to come back to the past 
past few days and about the past week. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of finally balanced back out a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and just happy to be back and, and recording again. So again, thanks for making time and uh, hopefully we can give them something interesting today. Yeah, of course. Okay, great. Well, yeah, to uh, to go ahead and get into things, I, I know we've talked a little bit off the record already, uh, a little bit about your background and uh, how some of what you're interested in and, and what you were brought up in relates to a lot of what I talk about on this show. But there's a, a basic framework that I, I've decided to go with today, and, and we'll see how much it holds up, that there's essentially these three trends that that I've noticed in, in the past few years uh, in, in the political sphere here in the U.S. that are developing. And just quickly, one of them being just an overall increase in, in polarization, uh, a decrease in, in people who would maybe identify as moderate or, or be in the middle on the political spectrum. What we're seeing the the further the, the outward ranges of the political spend, spectrum be more and more populated. Um, we're seeing politics become a part of everything where maybe there was a time that people could, I don't know, sit down for lunch and say, all right, we're going to keep politics and religion off the table, right? Cl- classically speaking, that these are like the, the topics you don't talk about uh, with people you want to get along with. But now it's, it's almost as though it's impossible to, to have a conversation about almost anything without it somehow becoming political or, or it having some sort of political implication. Um, so I guess that would be the second. And then the third being just an overall decrease in, in satisfaction in regards to our, our current system, our current uh, government, as well as our economic model, that being capitalism in general and people, I guess, just warming to the idea in general of of socialism or, or some socialist adjacent system uh, as, a, as a potential alternative to where we are now. Um, so I guess just to, to dive right in on one of those, we'll start with the polarization piece. And given your background and, and, and where you grew up and your kind of experience with a, a couple different socio-political cultures, uh, I'm just curious how how you see political polarization um, and what your exposure to is it is to it uh, at this point? Yeah, well, I was born in 95 and Chavez, I'm from Venezuela, Chavez won the elections in 99. So I only remember that system. I don't, I, I, I don't have any memories of life before Chavez or life before communism. I have uh, my first memories were of uh, 2001, 2002, which were which were big episodes in the politics in in Venezuela. Those were the years of the coup d'état to Chavez when he got kidnapped and when everything went hell went loose because he had a couple years of relative political peace when he claimed to be a friend of the private sector. He claimed during his campaign, his first campaign before he won that that he was a friend of the business people and well that discourse uh, 
that narrative changed quickly. So I just I my first memories are, are from those years when hell went lo- break loose. And in that moment, people um, subscribed to one side or the other hard. Like they went on one stream, you were a supporter of the government, you were a follower of Chavez, or you were an enemy of the country. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in, in 2002, and when he um, nationalized uh, PDVSA, which was the large oil company, which was private, the main source of of money to the country because Venezuela doesn't manufacture anything. It doesn't produce anything besides oil, crude oil, because we don't even produce gasoline or, or diesel. We don't. We take the oil, take it somewhere else, and then that uh, other countries sell us the gasoline, which is a very weird situation to have. Mm-hmm. So in that moment when he nationalized the company, he created this witch hunt where the same principle apply. You are with me or you are against me. Mm-hmm. And these people, engineers, they all went to Texas, to Miami, fleeing because they were, they were being pursued by, by the state. And from that moment on, you you couldn't be a a, a moderate in Venezuela. You were mm. you were you you had to take a a side, and you had to take it like very hard. You couldn't stay quiet during political conversations, mm. as you said um, that of of taking a pause, a break during lunch, even on a family setup uh, was impossible. Families, in fact, uh, suffer a lot. I know many families that that were broken because of that uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, some were, uh, in Minnesota, you call them opositores, uh, are against the government. Mm-hmm. They have many names. Many of them are derogative, imposed by the state. And if you were Chavista, communist, you were like the other side and you couldn't have friends on the other side. It created a very um, visible and difficult division in the society. You could see that in your family. You could see that in the workplace. And yeah, you, you weren't allowed to be a moderate. So it was very difficult in my family, even in my personal case, I... I don't know why, but I I don't know I I can recall the origin of my of my political position, mm-hmm. but I always since I have a memory I always been against the the communism in Venezuela, mm-hmm. but my parents were for a very long time supporters of it. Mm-hmm. They had like very strange uh, justifications or motives for it. My mom is a very sensitive woman. She doesn't have very strong political affiliations, but she saw how the government had many social pro- uh, programs that mm-hmm. gave a lot of money to very poor um, neighborhoods and areas. Mm-hmm. And that's why my mom, well, uh, support those, um, uh, the government at that time. 
she she doesn't do it because um, no more because all that happened uh, after that, of course. And my dad, because my dad supported the government for many years because he was very against the the system that was in place before. It is a reality that before Chavez, there was a bipartisan system that was extremely corrupt and the poor was very neglected. That's a reality that we also need to to acknowledge, to accept its existence. And that was his reason. But with time, they realized that it wasn't a good thing. And, well, we are here now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting history and, and what I think a lot of people don't have uh, a great amount of exposure to, I'd say, at least here in the States. I mean, I think there's a general idea that uh, even now that there's a good amount of instability and in, in, in a general crisis in, in Venezuela. Um, I know kind of for different reasons presently, but uh, I guess it, it all matters and it all can be put in context by, by what has happened over the past few decades. Um, yeah. But I guess even jumping forward to now, how would you say that, uh, I guess, compares to your, your situation now as it relates to politics in Spain and, and how that is, is maybe different or similar? Well, I have to, to say something. I have to confess that I'm, I have been describing this very polarized situation in Venezuela, and I was part of it. I was in the extreme of the opposition was I, I, this is weird because I was very in the extreme. I was impossible to, to, to have a discussion that may, that opened the possibility to me changing my mind about the hate because it was hate against the government. And I was a victim of that polarization because you can be victim of that polarization. You see that there is no space for being a moderate and you fall in that game too. You, I don't like to speak in terms of being a victim because I, I, I truly believe that people make their choices in many regards. This is one of them. But me being young, um, seeing how my opportunities disappear with time. I was, I come from a very poor background. I, I studied and then because of the situation, I lost my studies. I have a college degree that is a very nice piece of decoration because of the situation. That's the, that's the situation. So I, 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 I was fed by hate. I, I was filled by, by hate for a very long time against the government. I still am because I'm, I, I, I really think that they are the enemy. But after I left and came here to Spain, I promised myself to learn to be more moderate and to be capable to see things from every point of view. Spain allowed me to do that for a while. But things here aren't precisely okay. That after my arrival here, a political party called Podemos 
which is far left, uh, start um, getting into the government. They gain a lot of support from young people. And they had this very far left discourse. The leader of the party, Pablo Iglesias, was a very close friend to Chavez. So I was like, oh my God, not again. And for a while, they, they, they were like the center of the conversation because they were like pushing for change and having these very solid arguments in favor of socialism. And people were, were convinced. I was a little bit scared. I was trying to understand what was going on. Spain has a very difficult history um, with communism and, and the right and the far right. Because I don't know, I, the Spain history, recent history, I don't think how known is in the States, but after a very um, bloody civil war less than a hundred years ago here in Spain, the communists were like, um, um, put into jail or executed directly. My, the uncle, the brother of my grandfather, he was a communist here in Spain. He was executed with no trial or anything. And they, they have like a very difficult history with communism and fascism. So it's difficult to criticize that people here are polarized for a while. They, they, they were, they were, coexisting in a relative peace. Politics was no reason to, to create hostilities between people, be, be, between fa in, into families, inside the families. But since this party got into the government with a very strong discourse in favor of communism and against all the people that weren't aligned to the, their ideals, the conversation became very violent too. You in Spain right now, you cannot say that you support a centrist or right wing um, party because you are a, you're, you're a Nazi. And here you can feel how the, the discourse is going the same direction. So it's, I think with time, if if there is no a correction, we will have the same situation again, which is a shame because because there is no need for that. I with years, I learned to be quite moderate. I still have my my views against communism because I lived that, and I suffered the consequences of the system. So I I quite set on my ideals and. But definitely I here in Spain, I learned to be more moderate because it's necessary because you suffer too much, your relationships suffer too much and nothing good comes from it. Even if you have, I have very good friends who are convinced communists, we can have conversations today. We can, I can, he can make me see his point of view. I will happily see things from his eyes and try to understand and he will do the same with me on the same page i have friends who are very far in the right and i do the same i try to understand everyone and 
trying to remember that everything is relative, you know? There are some ideals, there are some, some values and morals, but we are open to change our minds and we are constantly living this experience that learns, that teaches us many things, so I'm open to change. But I, I believe that there is some correction needed here before things get, get too, too, too hostile. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's not something that that I know a lot about in regards to the, the current political climate in, in Spain. I mean, I'm, I'm broadly aware that a lot of different countries have similar problems to, to what we experience uh, in the U.S., maybe in a somewhat unique way, but uh, movements of populism, um, movements of, of on the radical left, movements that are, are generally kind of uh, in opposition and in, in some ways can balance each other out, but as they relate to, to issues of immigration and uh, especially with a lot of the refugee crises that have been happening um, in Europe specifically, um, the yeah. U.S. is a little bit insulated, even though obviously we have a very close neighbor in, in, in Mexico where the large majority of our uh, immigration comes from, which Actually, that's kind of not true. It, it's actually more so China and India, but uh, on the surface, it seems as though that is the, the primary. Um, but yeah, I know that a lot of countries, I feel like a lot of the division can can be stemmed from that issue of how, how to deal with a, a changing population and with, with new people coming to your country who have different uh, ideals and, and different culture and uh you know, do we say we, we open up our borders to, to all people? Do we say there's criteria? Do we say we need to preserve what we have? Uh, I think th that can be a very foundational issue for people and especially one that people can have a very emotional and, and visceral reaction to. Um, and I know that's more complicated in Europe because there's so many countries close together and it is closer to uh, several nations that have been having uh, crisis in, in a refugee sense. So I, all that to say, I know broadly that a lot of countries in Europe have, have been seeing more extreme political movements crop up, especially as it relates to that issue. Mm -hmm. um, and you see obviously some of that in the U S and I'm sure you've heard about, you know, building a wall and, and all of that, uh, rhetoric from, from the previous administration. But, uh, yeah, I guess to maybe get a little more precise with it, and I'm curious to see what overlap there is for you, is when you see, I guess, in, in this example, we'll say Spain now, or maybe even Venezuela in the past, where you see the left starting to uh, overstep, or you even see the right starting to overstep historically. Um, for me, it seems like when any side starts to uh, work on the side of, of silencing people, of, of not allowing people a seat at the table, uh, allowing people to speak their views. Obviously in America, freedom of speech is a, is a big issue and one that we hold very dearly to our hearts, but I know it's not necessarily one that all nations uh, hold or respect. And, um, yeah, just a general, when open-mindedness seems to be 
not a priority anymore is where I start to get concerned and, and, and how I've started to get concerned to some degree about the climate here in the U.S. that people have lost interest in, in hearing from the other side. People are, are cutting ties. They're burning bridges. They're losing family members. You know, they're saying, I'm, I'm never going to talk to this person again. Mm. I, I, I couldn't be friends with someone who is mm. X. I, I, I would never hire someone who is this. These sorts of, you know, very strong statements. That's for me where I start to get concerned when people on either side are, are saying things like that. But I'm, I'm curious from your experience if there's any... I guess, telltale signs that, that you're seeing now in Spain that I guess maybe to illuminate it a little bit more for the audience, what you mean when you say you feel like right now, at least on the left, things are, are starting to go too far. Well, the first thing, and this is a societal problem, maybe one that is fueled by the, by the polit politicians, is that it's forbidden to, to think differently. Like... Right now, the left has a lot of power in, in Spain. So every single person who claims to have a right-leaning idea in the social or economical matters, that makes you a Nazi. Like, there is no questioning about it. You're the enemy, what you're saying is an attack against us and the the nation's security and well-being. Like you are the enemy, and you see that because I have friends uh, who I know I I like I care about, but I know that I cannot say a word about what I. They know what what are my stance on, uh, on things. And they have a hard, a very hard time um, processing that. We, of course, don't talk ever about politics, ever. And I'm happy not to do it. Well, I'm not happy uh, uh, with that um, relation in, in terms of I have to keep my, my mouth shut in order to be accepted. That became the, the most... Um, normal thing in Venezuela. I spoke anyway because I don't really care. I like debating. I like when my ideas are are challenged maybe because I'm maybe I'm wrong. I have been wrong in the past a lot and I have changed my mind in many topics um, constantly. So I would like to have those debates but there are some friendships I have that we know what we think where we stand and we cannot talk because about these matters because they're too sensitive for them. I'm very sorry, but I open to talk about them and there is no space for those conversations here right now. In the left, you think like them here in Spain, okay? Mm -hmm. And these um, groups of people, you think like them, or you're the enemy. Like, there is no space for debating. And I, I have seen that because uh, more more frequently be, be, uh, since these parties in the in power, because they are feeding constantly this narrative from, from their position. 
they have a lot of influence on, on young people, especially. And I have seen many group of friends who are now friends because of this. So this is something I saw in Venezuela a very long time ago. And it only went to, to it only went worse. Like it was constantly getting worse and worse. And that's one sign. That's a very, maybe the, the worst one because it, you can see it amongst regular people. And then the other side, uh, uh, sign I'm seeing right now in Spain is in the government itself, where there is no space for politicians or even civil workers who think differently. If you want to get into a position of, of influence, uh, you need to be a very close ally in terms of I ideology. There is no, um, you you don't see any any dynamism within parties anymore. Before you had parties that were plural in their ideas. Now you have like a solid block of pretty defined uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. And the left is now in power. The PSOE, which is. Uh, the original communist uh, party here in Spain is very old. Like it's, it's from, it has its origins since the civil war. And mm -hmm. uh, they are in power alongside with Podemos, the party I mentioned before. And they created this bubble, this bubble where you have to be like a very, you need to, to speak strongly in favor of socialism slash communism, if you want to get inside this bubble. Mm -hmm. And they don't allow participation of political players from other parties. There's no debating. You see the Congress sessions and they are like a joke. Mm -hmm. There is no conversation there. There are a few screaming here and there and they make the choices. And that, um, and that way to control power is something I saw in Venezuela. In Venezuela, we had like a different controls. You have the presidential power, the Congress, you have different controls that create a balance. And with time, they capture all the powers to, to concentrate them and to eliminate that balance, eliminate that accountability. And that's happening here since a while ago. They're capturing all powers, getting people in other spheres of influence and trying to gather all the power for themselves. Mm. And a third and final sign I will say that I'm seeing here is a call of personality. Mm. I see how the party is not a party anymore. The leader of the party is selling himself hard mm -hmm. and trying to be the face of the government, which wasn't like this before. In Venezuela, it wasn't like that before. When Chavez came, he created this very sick, like you, you, you can see some things that are, are proper of a, of a dystopian novel in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. 
I, 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 I show Rachel many of these things. She was like, he couldn't believe this. For example, if you go to Venezuela, you can see a, a, a logo, a illustration of Chavez eyes, like painting of big buildings, billboards in the mountain, like big brother kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. And here you see, especially Podemos, Pablo Iglesias, that um, the circle of hard communist uh, politicians, they are, they, they go hard with the whole um, code of personality concept. They, they sell themselves and their plans, like something they created. There is no team behind their, propo their proposals. Everything is about them, about them, about them. And that's something I don't really like in politics. I, I, I do believe that in, in politics, there are always strong individuals, but change is created by true um, real union and teamwork. And when you sell these... Um, these these proposals with the, this with someone face, I don't like it by experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating because we've certainly seen a, maybe one of the more interesting case studies in, in history of that uh, happen here in the U.S. Uh, over the past four years. Uh, obviously, on the other side of the spectrum, but. Um, uh, a huge cult of personality in regards to our our, our previous or now previous president um, and the way that he was able to to capture uh, and inspire and motivate a certain section of the population in a way I mean obviously um, I, I assume you know about what happened at the Capitol at the beginning of this year yeah. and things that really just, it was almost hard to believe, you know, to see these sorts of things happen here and in the U.S., at least as an American, that uh, you, you thought you would just never see that this is something that would maybe happen in a, in a third world country or or something of that nature. But but to see these people, uh, I guess this deluded by, by a, as you said, a cult of personality, a, a pathology that is, is very difficult to understand and to empathize with and to not lash out towards or to hate, to not, to not feel like those people that did those things are your enemy. But at, at the same time, I, I still can accept that as part of the problem that that impulse is there, that even to see those people who seem to want to bring our democracy to its knees, uh, someone's legitimate efforts to, to undermine this, this whole system that we've established for so long and that has, has done a lot of good for the world. Um, it's, it's difficult to stand by and to not start to, to feel pushed towards a more extreme stance on things. But it, it certainly on, on the flip side has been a very interesting experience these past few years to see how, how deep of a hole uh, our, our last political leader managed to dig himself, um, to, to mishandle uh, situation after situation. And still, when we had our elections uh, a year ago, 
things were close. And uh, that was, I think, a real wake-up call for a lot of people. And I personally thought it was going to be close. I think a lot of people that I know did not think so and maybe were cautiously optimistic after what happened last time around. But it, it seemed as though it should have been a runaway election, that after all of the holes and fires he'd created for himself, that uh, the large majority of people would, would simply say, okay, let's just move on. We, we, need, we need a change. And still, for, for reasons that maybe on some level you've already spoken to, um, it was pretty close. And a lot of people still sided with Trump uh, despite everything because of a, I mean, you could say there's a lot of reasons that I'm not necessarily here to dig into that too much, but I, you, when you hear from people on the other side, a lot of it is at least the perception on their end that they're being put into boxes, that they're being uh, labeled in ways that are unfair, that they're being uh, condescended upon by um, people on the left or that they're uh, being silenced, that they're they're being controlled, things of this nature, that this is how a lot of people feel. And, and whether or not you necessarily agree uh, with that stance, it's still valid feedback to know, okay, this, despite everything that went wrong in the past four years, is enough. This is something that people care about enough and respond to enough. People want to be heard. People um, don't don't want to be looked down on. People and in general are are upset with the way that things are and they feel like someone who can kind of uh i guess give a middle finger to to ordinary politics and to political correctness and to all sorts of things is is someone worth voting for uh regardless of it all and that's that's a big problem you know because i i something i always talk about is like it could have been so much worse you know is is lucky we yeah. were kind of lucky here in the states yeah. that that trump was kind of an incompetent idiot yep. uh because if he had been a, a true mastermind uh, a true mm -hmm. uh, if he to make a comparison if he had been like more of a a putin you know someone mm -hmm. who had real aims uh someone who really was not just a, a cult of personality who was, was a narcissist and, and maybe never thought he could win in the first place and then stumbled into this incredible power. Uh, if he really had aims to bring down this country or others or uh, to, to craft something much more benevolent, uh, it mm -hmm. seems that though that would have worked just fine. And that is, it's, it's fucking alarming, you know, it's, it's yeah. fucking, I'm I'm perfectly happy to say that I uh, on the political spectrum I I lean left for for U.S. standards, um, and so I, I say it with a, a degree of I guess self reflection. But there's there's definitely some room for improvement here. It's it's obviously not as extreme, but but on the left we we have started to struggle with with issues of free speech um, with with issues of open-mindedness with with issues of uh, an expectation of kind of kind of social and, and even psychological homogeny that uh, everyone ought to think the same way and 
we've started to kind of cannibalize our more moderate members that, uh, as you kind of spoke to before, someone says one thing, they have one stance that, that doesn't fit the bill. And we say, okay, we're going to reject you and push you to the other side. We're going to say, okay, because you have this view on, um, I'll just bring up immigration again, regardless of what, like all your other views, you, you know, you could be totally leftist and, and, and every other thing that you think, but you, you take this one view, you take this one stance, you say this one thing, we put you in a box um, and, and we call you something that, that you might not be. And obviously people don't respond well to that. You know, people, people don't like being called a Nazi. People don't like being called a racist. And, and obviously there are real racist people and they're, are real neo-Nazis here in America that, that have done some real harm. Uh, but at the same time, that, that is a fringe movement here. And that, that's something that a very small amount of people actually really identify with. And if we start putting these labels on anyone who, as you spoke to, you know, breaks line a little bit, says something that doesn't sit well with everyone, uh, we start rejecting these people that are, you know, who lean left, but have maybe some conservative views that isn't really going to bode well in the long term if someone on the right comes along who's a little more moderate and can appeal to those people. And and luckily, Trump wasn't that. Uh, you know, he wasn't. But uh, and again, this is more just speaking from my own um, from my own political uh I, I hate the term, but like team, if you will, that I, I, I identify as it for whatever it's worth. And I, I consider myself to be very moderate for whatever that's worth. But at the end of the day, it's, it's how I'm registered. I'm fine with saying that. And I, I think that in general, uh, they get more things right than they get wrong uh, in my country. But yeah. it, it, it seems as though we're moving towards a, a political landscape that it'll be interesting, I think, because I think right now we have a president who, for what it's worth, is quite moderate, who mm -hmm. a lot of people on the left actually kind of dislike, mm -hmm. um, but still the kind of older base of the party, um, you know, he had the name recognition, he was under Obama. And so I think enough people just felt like it was a safe, stable option. Um, but a lot of younger people uh, generally dislike him, think that he's too moderate. And it's a, there's a general sense that there's a changing of the guard happening right now. And that uh, once Biden is done, that, that the party will kind of be handed off to a, a younger generation of politicians who who identify as, uh, I guess, social Democrats or, or for whatever that's worth. Um, and a lot of that is... Uh, I think interesting and I think it's good for there to be different ideas out there. I think it's, it's good for there to be a spectrum, but at the same time, if that starts to become the base of the party, it's, it's definitely something that personally I, I see some problems with and that, that, that main problem that we've kind of identified is there is this expectation of, of everyone thinking this very specific way um, of, of it being uh some some level of compelled speech or uh, some level of policing how people ought to think, and yeah. I think that that again in 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 relation to the things that you've spoken to uh, there in Spain and and back in Venezuela, it's it, it's obviously not that bad. But at the same time, I think some people have a certain degree of ignorance that we've 
we've seen very clearly like what the right going too far looks like most recently because of our last administration. And obviously everyone, I mean, I hate to say obviously because there's some deniers, but most people <laughs> agree about the Holocaust and, and, and Nazis and, and that being one of the biggest kind of large scale uh, presentations of one side of a political spectrum going much, much too far and being unchecked. But I think a lot of people have started to lose touch with what the left going too far looks like, because obviously mm -hmm. that can happen. And it has happened historically all over the world uh, in many countries like Venezuela. And I think sometimes in America, because we are we're a very capitalist country um, and we're an increasingly progressive country that people see uh People are leaning more and more left, especially the youth, and, and seem to think that there's almost no such thing as, as the left going too far and that mm -hmm. it's, it's generally just the right side of history and it will continue on a certain yeah. trajectory indefinitely without there being problems. And uh, I, I assume you disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think for the first thing is that socialism has a very romantic element in it. Mm. It, 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 it make very romantic promises about how the society can, can be or country can be. So it has very strong arguments and, and very useful tool for young people to become, um, to romanticize as being part of it. And in Venezuela, we didn't have any experience with communism before Chavez. So for us, it was impossible. It was like impossible to conceive the idea that Venezuela could become a Sovietic country, that it could become a, a second Cuba. It was impossible because mm -hmm. we were like a very strong uh, capitalistic uh, society uh, we have like very a, a very close relationship with the states on very different levels and so we were like we were like you in some ways we think mm -hmm. uh, that um, suffering the consequences of a socialist system was impossible in, uh, in Venezuela because we had this way of doing things. We have these institutions that will protect us from the communist um, um, enemy. So we were like, no, don't worry about it. And then Chavez came. It was known that he was, um, that he liked the... Cuba, he liked a lot Fidel. It was it wasn't known that they had like a personal relationship that was known mm -hmm. after a few years. When he started uh, doing some visits himself to Cuba to meet with Fidel, that was something that was very scandalous and controversial controversial. Mm -hmm. Because as I said before, he claimed to be a friend of the private sector. And then uh, he started to to expropriate. I don't know the word in English for that. It's when you force the 
the acquisition of a private company for oh, okay. in favor of the state. I don't know the, the, the mm -hmm. English word for that. Um, but even when Chavez went to Cuba repeatedly to, to meet with Fidel, Venezuelans were like, no, it's, it's impossible that we, we became, that, that we're going to become a, 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 like Cuba. It's impossible. Like, mm -hmm. They have different, a very different situation. We cannot become Cuba. We're not going to. But disaster, this kind of disaster doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. This kind of degeneration of the country and self-destruction is very progressive. So you, you, if you don't pay enough attention, you don't notice until it's too late, until you mm. suffer on a personal level, the consequences. And I believe that's something that may, may happen in the States. I, I don't discard that fate for a very capitalistic um, country mm. because those who support the, the left ignore the very real possibility that they may suffer the consequences of such system. Mm. Because when, when you haven't been there, you think you know better. That you right. think how to implement the system in the right way. You right. see that new socialist politicians all around the world say that they recognize the, the mistakes made by other socialist systems. And now they know those mistakes, they are not going to make them. Mm -hmm. Chavez did the same. He claimed to be, and he was, he was a very cultured intellectual man because he was in jail for six years. Mm. After six years, no, more than that, I believe. Six or nine, I don't remember now. After uh, a coup d'etat, he made to talk to a civil president in Venezuela. Mm. Um, before that event, he was a regular military um, he, he had like a very high rank he wasn't a general or, or anything like that but he had the power and influence to organize uh, what he did mm -hmm. but he wasn't intellectual or anything like that but he spent his his time in jail very well and mm -hmm. he he got out of jail being a very different person you could feel that he was very aware and confident of what he was saying and doing, but he claimed to to know what he was doing. That he was now the person to implement the system correctly. The ones before him in the Soviet Union, Cuba, they didn't know, or this is a good one, the states, the United States didn't allow them to implement the system correctly. Hmm. Because if you see the narrative in Cuba, the, the culprit, the, the one responsible for the, the tragedy, the real uh, culprit is the states, mm -hmm. not Fidel, not the Castro family. No, they were trying to implement a very good system, but the states um, prevent prevent them to do so. So, yeah, I believe that 
it's going to happen. The, I, I truly believe in the states, the left is going to to get in position of power and they, they will implement socialist uh, a socialist agenda maybe maybe before we can we can think we, we believe but it's something that we we must go through and try to manage what is happening i don't think that the states or the right in the states is going to prevent that mm-hmm. because i think it's something cyclical you will see because in in venezuela someday i hope this nightmare is going to end mm-hmm. But the ones in power after that will be the people on the other stream. Mm-hmm. Because you become like traumatized and then you choose the people on the other stream that you enemies were. Mm-hmm. For right. me, it's weird that Biden won because he's a moderate. I'm very happy with that with that outcome. But after Trump, who is someone in one stream, it's weird that you you didn't end up with a, right. a left a far left politician because things always balance out in that way. It seems to me. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems quite natural, and I mean, it's it's a well documented phenomenon, of course, well, uh, over over history and, and across many nations, and even back in the time of empires. But uh, yeah, it, it was a little bit surprising in some ways. And, uh, again, I, it's something that I, I maybe, you know, uh, bit my tongue a little bit with, or not bit my tongue, but maybe held my nose is a more, a better way of saying that. Um, because it was a, it was an outcome that I generally supported and was happy about, despite the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of his, uh, his breed of politics either, but it, it seemed like it was, the best overall move. And it seemed like it was what we probably needed to avoid a situation in which uh, a candidate made it through. I mean, I guess obviously Sanders was, was the, was the near, I guess the the near runner up and a situation in which I felt like there was a good chance that Trump got reelected running against someone who identified as, as a, a, a socialist, a, a democratic socialist for what it's worth, but still something that would not have mobilized the middle very well. Um, yeah. And would not have changed a lot of minds of people who voted for Trump four years ago, right? Because that that is ultimately what needed to happen. And I didn't think he was the person to do it, despite the fact that I, I think mm-hmm. he's a, I think he's an interesting guy. I, I, I like him as a person. I certainly don't like all of his policy, but that's that's kind of beside it that I thought generally it was a good outcome and we'll see, you know, I think in uh-huh. regards to what happens from now, it's, it's a little bit tricky because naturally after uh, an administration like the previous one, it seems like uh, a, you know, because there's been a bit of a consolidation of power and generally, you know, the, most most of the political movement that we'll see in the next, we'll just go ahead and say eight years, uh, is going to be in that direction. And I think people are going to be mostly open to um, progressive policy because it, it all seems almost reasonable compared to what we saw 
over the past four years. So hopefully there's enough of enough balance that it's it's not an overcorrection, but naturally I think that's that's often what you see. And I think we see that already a little bit by people who are, are very much uh dissatisfied with how moderate Biden is still, you know, that mm-hmm. that even after some some, you know, significant progress in the right direction, it just doesn't feel like enough. It, it's um and I guess that's again the, the progressive impulse is is mm-hmm. to kind of act swiftly and, and to to change things um and, and to to do things a little bit quicker and more radically and, and the conservative impulse at base, even apolitically, is is to to be patient and to show restraint. So um what yeah. do you think about what's your opinion on the pace that progressive propose to make change? It's something I discuss a lot with, with Rachel. Hmm. Like that yeah, thing. I mean I, I I generally think that right now some of it seems a little fast. Um I think that uh, even if you look at the, what some might call, actually, before I say it, I want to make another point, which is, I think it's unfortunate that often the only people who are talking about these sorts of things are very much right of center, right? And I, I think sometimes people get confused about these issues because generally, uh, we'll just say in the States, they're being talked about on Fox News all the time. Uh, things of this nature, the, the excesses of the left, um, this this sort of trajectory. And so I think people on the left see that and say, they kind of, uh, they turn a blind eye to it because it's like, they're just talking nonsense. Uh, I, I don't believe any of that stuff. And so it's, but people on the left generally feel, I don't even want to say scared, but discouraged or not incentivized to talk about these sorts of things in uh, in some degree of fear or worry that, as we spoke to before, stepping out of line uh, at all puts you on the wrong side of things. And that there's a general expectation that th- the party moves how the party moves. And if at any point the party comes out tomorrow and says, hey, you know, um, I guess immigration has been an undercurrent. So we say we want to open the borders 100%, uh, no restrictions whatsoever. If that's something that comes out of the, the heart of the party tomorrow, there's an expectation that that people on the left will, will get on board with it because it's more progressive. It, it seems more compassionate. It seems more tolerant. And anyone who would for a moment say, wait, hold on a second. Like, what what does that really mean? What does that really look like? Um, I'm not sure personally I'm on board with that. That puts you uh, in, in a bucket with a bunch of other people who the only ones who are saying it are people who are conservative. So it's, um, I say all that to say that uh, ultimately I think it's uh, maybe just an asterisk next to this conversation that uh, is, is a big part of the problem that people on the left are not as accustomed to criticizing their own party um, or uh, having having debate within it because generally the more progressive edge of it always seems to be right right that 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 is like whoever is pushing things in a more progressive direction is probably ultimately going to be right over time yeah. but um, in regards to your actual question I think 
where was I going with that? Oh yeah. In regards to the, the current, you could probably call a crisis at our, our current border um, in regards to some kind of swift action that was taken, yeah. uh, you, you yeah. know, when, when the administration first uh, took office and I think they're now acknowledging was, was not the best move, even though things were in, in, uh, in bad condition. And so the, the impulse was, okay, let's, let's bring this all back. You know, let's uh, revoke all of this, you know, Trump era stuff. Mm. Let's just do it immediately because like, this has to be stopped. We can't be tied to this. And it's, it's had huge consequences. And it, obviously I, I empathize with the impulse to want to, to help the people who are suffering and, and help the children who are there. And, and the conditions are, are very um, unethical, mm-hmm. generally speaking, but at the same time it has created, you could argue even a larger problem and even more unethical conditions for people at the border because of how many people have shown up in, in the past few months. So I think it's a, a salient example of, of what that looks like when, when maybe we act a little bit too fast in the name of, of compassion and tolerance and we don't consider the more downstream effects. Uh, so yeah. I, I think in, in some situations that that tends to happen and, and sometimes I think it's necessary, right? I get that to some extent when something is, you truly believe that something is wrong or that there's something unethical taking place like you just have to yeah. do something and you can't just sit around and watch people suffer while you kind of you know hyper intellectualize an issue and, and brew of it for months but at the same time it's you have to look at the bigger picture and of course restraint is a is an important part of any decision and again when you say uh, conservatism that has a whole it carries this totally different meaning and weight yeah. but when you say restraint i think people that seems more relatable. Like, okay, like that's something in my daily life. I have to show restraint to not like, you know, eat, eat a whole cake every day or mm-hmm. um, shoot up heroin all the time or something, you know, like these are things that, that we understand in our personal lives, but sometimes in the political sphere, I think because they align with a certain way of thinking in a political party, we, we think that they're generally wrong or, or based yeah. on how we think about things, just like progress, like feels like kind of a, a hot word for conservatives where it's like generally progress is something that we want. We could all probably agree on, but one party identifies as progressive. So it's like, okay, all progress, um, all positive change for the future. Uh, we're always on the side of that, you know? And I think that's kind of a, a moral high ground that sometimes the left takes. It's like, we're just trying to make things better. Um, and I think the rebuttal there is, there's trade-offs to everything and uh, something that looks like progress on its face doesn't always look like that. And I think we, we get mobilized by ideas like, like uh, universal healthcare or yeah. free education or uh, you, you know, any, any increase in, in public services, yeah. um, public goods, th- these things all sound good in principle and things yeah. that generally I, I, um, I would love to have, right? I mean, of course I would want to have these things in a bubble, but at the same time, we, we know we live in a scarce world and it's, it's always at what cost. And, um, I think that's, that's why I am a bit more moderate than, than mm-hmm. some, because I, I think that's, that's always important. Um, but I don't know if that, if that answers your question. 
No, um, yeah, it answers the question. I, what, what I like of the pace is that there is no right or wrong answer from my perspective. I believe mm -hmm. that the progressive uh, wing uh, is defined by being very swift in their actions. They want mm -hmm. things to happen today in a very emotional way, which can be good or bad, depending on the case. Mm -hmm. the, the right is defined by obstructionism from mm -hmm. most of the time because it's the reality. They want to do things to stay the, the way they are. But it, it can be a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, a few years ago here in Spain, when the left won, they decided to open the borders for a mm -hmm. few days to receive a few big chips of the, the Red Cross ships that were carrying African immigrants. Mm -hmm. And in principle, there was a very good thing because it has, it, on a moral perspective, I support the, I supported the decision, but then the consequence came, which was like a call effect, I don't know, in Spanish, it's Efecto Llamada, which mm. is like, okay, now I do this, I send this example, and now we have five, six times uh, the people trying to get in. Right. And it ended up being a very large problem because these are people who throw themselves in little boats in the Mediterranean mm. and they drown. And they tried to come with their children and the children drowned. So now we have a very different problem. Hmm. So I, I think that we need, I, I believe on a personal level that regarding the pace of the decisions, we need to be moderate as well because this decision come with very, can come with very critical um, consequences. And on a different topic, you mentioned the universal healthcare. That that is this is something I living in Venezuela, where medicine uh, was private and was very expensive, despite the socialist system we have. Mm -hmm. Because it's very difficult to explain. Um, because in Venezuela, despite we have this socialist system, if you didn't belong to a commune or a neighbor with a public center uh, you had limited access to free healthcare mm -hmm. and with the years uh, these centers became like useless they hadn't any medicine uh, or supplies I mm -hmm. once had like a very strong pain because I have uh, gastritis so I had to go to four different hospitals. They didn't have any uh, anesthesia, any analgesics, nothing, painkillers. They weren't any uh, on four different hospitals. And I end up paying a lot of money on a private clinic, at a private clinic, just to ease the pain. Mm. So wow. it's... it's it's a very weird situation. So when I came here to Spain, you know, you hear about Spain that in whole in, in, in the European Union that we have this 
universal healthcare, which is so amazing and is so marvelous. And the states we hear uh, politicians in the left in the states that they see European healthcare like something like a, a goal, something mm -hmm. a model to follow. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, it's managed by the state, which is, in my experience, he, in Venezuela and now here in Spain, is very deficient. Uh, if you have a problem, they give you an appointment for uh, three, four, five months in the future. Oh, uh, I had a very, for a while, uh, apnea problem during my sleep. And it was affecting my life. It was in the moment affecting my life in a serious way. I couldn't sleep for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, for a few months. And they gave me the appointment uh, with the specialist seven months in the future. Jeez. When the date finally came, I received a text message to remind me about the appointment. And I received the text. And I asked myself, what is this? I don't know what is this. I even forgot mm -hmm. I was spending this, I was expecting this appointment. And a few months ago, I had appendicitis. Well, after this ex horrible experience with healthcare, uh, public healthcare here in, in Spain, I had a serious condition in my skin. So I went several times to my doctor in the public system. Mm -hmm. They didn't care. You feel how they treat you. They don't absolutely care if you get better because it's, it's, they will get paid in the end, right. regardless if the patient gets better. And that's mm -hmm. it. That's the end of the story. And they refuse uh, to give me a specialist appointment for three years. I insisted for three years. They told me, they gave me very different uh, and, and in, incoherent uh, diagnosis about what it was. In the end, I end up going to a private doctor and it was solved uh, that day. Hmm. And hmm. I, I had appendicitis a few months ago and I went to my private clinic uh, with my insurance, my, my private insurance and everything went well. Shortly after my surgery, I heard this a story about a boy in a nearby town that he had appendicitis. He went to the public hospital. He spent a few hours in, in the ER. They sent him back to, the, to his house because they tell him that he was just paying gas. Well, the boy died because the appendicitis became uh how is it called in english um it's called peritonitis in spanish is when your appendix bursts and it oh, okay. burns you inside yeah and then you, you see that and you see that the system has a lot of improvement to to do And this, even when I pay my private insurance, I need to continue paying for healthcare, mm -hmm. public health. Yeah. I'm still paying for that, but mm -hmm. it's kind of useless. So I'm for uh, universal healthcare as long 
is doesn't look anything like the European model. Because mm -hmm. yeah, you it works. It what is it is true if that it works if you have very serious, very serious uh, conditions. If you get cancer, mm -hmm. it works because right. during cancer in the states you need to be rich. You're going to yeah. you're going to get in serious uh, debt. It, that doesn't happen here. That's true. But yeah. for everything else, uh, mm -hmm. you, you're going to have problems. Mm. So I, 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 when I hear people in the States that they're claiming that the Spanish or the European system of healthcare is, per, is something to aim, I have mm. a serious doubt. Uh, I, don't, I think the system right now in the States is very improvable. It can improve a lot. Mm -hmm. But making it free, I don't think is the answer. I don't think free stuff um, is the answer to our problems. I, I truly believe that when politicians uh, start offering free stuff, that's a red flag. Hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it never really is free. And that's, yeah. that's I think, the part of it that, that sometimes is it's hard to see through because it, it's not always obvious where we're paying for it. Um, obviously there's taxes, but, but not everyone pays those equally. And, and that's not really the relationship there isn't even direct per se. I think a lot of people wonder what, what our, our money is, is going towards, but um, yeah, it's, there, there's always going to be, whether something becomes less efficient, something yeah. becomes, uh the the floor is is maybe raised but the the ceiling yeah. is lowered you, you know you, you're more regressing everyone towards a certain mean you know these these are all things to, to take into account and and as uh a bit of a caveat like i i understand the importance of these systems obviously and i'm i'm someone who in america you know grew up using a, a lot of the the very helpful and a public services that we do have i i grew up on on medicare and and food stamps and and all kinds of things you know i i didn't i didn't have a lot as a kid and, and my family was a family that needed a lot of these uh public goods to to get by and i wouldn't probably be where i am today if it wasn't for that yeah. so to be clear i certainly support a lot of these things in principle but again it's it's that same discussion of okay if we're going to change these things uh, if, if we're going to expand them, if we're going to make them more accessible, how are we really changing that? And, and, and where are we pulling away from in a, in a big way to be able to make that happen from a budgetary perspective? Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do we, is it possible to, to raise the floor without cutting out the ceiling? You know, is it, is it possible to do both things? And I think that's, that's where I always aim politically and it's easier mm -hmm. said than done where I, I 100% can acknowledge that the floor has to be higher in a country like America, you know, it, it, for all the wealth that we have, wealth inequality is, is maybe our biggest problem, or at least in my opinion. And there's, there's no reason for some people to be living the way that they are in this country for all that we do have. Yep. But at the same time, can we do that without having to cap people's potential without putting, putting handcuffs on people and, and what they can accomplish and what they can do and, and demotivating people. And again, m much, much easier said than done. But yeah. I think anytime the conversation is just about, we need to, to raise the floor at all costs, 
that can be a slippery slope um, because that has been the essential message of, of every communist dictator there ever was, right? It's, it's, in in yeah. essence, even though obviously things pan out differently depending on the individual and the level of corruption, but at base, the idea is to, to raise the floor. And that's generally something that people can get behind uh, in, until they, they see what the cost really looks like and, and the sort of society and culture and um, incentive structure that, that it creates. But uh, on that note, I'm kind of curious if you have a, any opinions on or just knowledge of some of the, uh, I guess, Northern European, uh, Scandinavian countries that get brought up a lot here in the U.S. in regards yep. to, uh, I guess, quote unquote, success stories of, of socialism. Um, yeah, I'm yep. just curious if, if that's. No, well, it, 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 that's that's funny because politicians here in Spain Mm-hmm. use the same narrative that Scandinavian right. socialism uh, works and that's a model to follow. And the thing is, and this is why getting is getting into a philosophical debate, mm-hmm. it's difficult to implement systems, for example, Spain following the Nordic model, when the society is so different, on a social mm-hmm. level, we're very different. Uh, Spain, Spanish people, Spaniard people, without trying to criticize or put or on a negative light, I'm not trying to do that. But the average Spaniard people, well, we we like naps, and we like we're very mm-hmm. we like party. And we yeah. like easy living and we like to travel and to enjoy a lot of life. And we like to spend a few hours several times a week on a terrace, drinking wine and eating well. Mm-hmm. And you, if you go to Finland, when you have months of the year that when going out is painful because of the cold, yeah. nightmare and it's always dark and people this is what I heard from mm-hmm. multiple uh, persons um, people there are more empathetic and even if they are cold in their in their ways they care a lot for the neighbor and they have this strong sense of community where everyone works for the other. You don't see that in Spain. I'm, I'm very sorry. I love Spain. I love Spanish people. They're very fun. You can have a great life here. But society is very different on very different mm-hmm. levels. The Nordic countries have a very different standard of education, mm-hmm. which so, which is something that is very uh, defining for the economic system you are trying to implement because you have mm-hmm. more specialized people there, professionals there, which mm-hmm. they don't exist here. The ones who had certain uh, professional level go uh, leave Spain because Spain has like a insane unemployment rate 
uh, especially for young people. So when when politicians here try to sell the Nordic um, system, it's not something to take seriously because on a on a social level it's not compatible because we are very different human beings. Mm-hmm. Now, when politicians do it in the States, sounds more realistic because the American culture is more productive and Americans are more close and amicable with the concept of growth, personal growth, but also to push your country forward. Despite all the news we see, I don't know if you saw the recent ProPublica report about how the billionaires pay next to none in taxes. Mm. Besides yeah. that, we see that and we, we think, okay, these players in the capitalist system are very selfish, et cetera, et cetera. We can feel that. We can take that on a, on a negative light. But overall, American people are very... Um, they bet on their country and they're willing to make some sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And there is a very different work culture, very different. So I could see that system being implemented. You will mm-hmm. find a lot of um, resistance from the right because it is also true that you pay a lot of taxes in those countries, like crazy amounts, and that's mm-hmm. part of the, the way they are. They are willing to pay those amounts of taxes. They are happy to do it. They're happy to do it because they see, this is what I heard multiple times because I haven't been in those countries, but I, this is some, this is a recurring conversation here. Nordic people are very happy to pay a lot of taxes. You see, mm-hmm. you, you, you feel that from the public conversation. They're very willing to pay a lot of taxes. They feel that they, their, their money is well spent on social programs which is also part of of trust trusting in your institutions because I'm not happy paying a lot of taxes in Spain because corruption is very visible. So I'm paying a lot of taxes for a politician to have a very nice villa in Marbella. So I, I that's very visible and that's made me unhappy. Mm-hmm. So I pay a lot of taxes. This social uh, programs uh, do not work and uh, I get incur- I get um, discouraged about that. In Nordic countries, you see that corruption is next to unexistent. So they have a very different approach when it comes to paying taxes and being part of those social programs. You could you see that happening in the states? What's the perception of corruption? Do you feel that taxes get to the places that uh, ta- tax money get mm. to the places that it should? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in in general in the states, it's. Uh, I think there's a general perception that our money is not being used well, and. Of course, we don't pay a lot of taxes compared to, to other countries. I mean, in, in theory, that might increase in the future. But I think there's a very low amount of 
trust and belief in our political system, mm-hmm. uh, our public systems, our institutions in general, which I don't know, might come as a surprise to someone who's not from here, considering all that we do have. But in general, trust is very low and uh, faith in our systems is, is very low. Our our public institutions are, you know, where you go to get your license, our, our school system, largely broken, our healthcare system, largely broken. Uh, yeah, all of these things that you would think in a country like this would be quite good. Mm-hmm. To be fair, I think there's a lot of, I guess, we'll just say myopic thinking maybe that goes into that or even just a lack of perspective because it's all that we know and we expect so much from our own country yeah. uh, that we think we have things worse than we do. So it's it's definitely all relative, but it, it is one of those kind of really frustrating things here that we we have a lot, you know, our, our GDP is huge. We're incredibly industrious and productive, but at the same time, a lot of our public systems are just, are, are very, they, they fail in a lot of ways, especially for those who are poor, which yeah. are those who, who need them the most, but a lot of it is based on where you live. And so, you know, you go, even where I live now, you drive 20 miles east and what uh, a public school, a public park, a DMV, uh, a, a hospital looks like is very, very different. Mm. And just in any direction, you, you can, you'll you see that. And so where people have wealth, the public institutions are actually quite good, uh, sometimes inefficient, but generally quite good. But for average people, uh, especially poor people in, in these areas where there's... Um, there's less overall wealth it's 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 very below what you might expect and so i think that's maybe where some of the the conservative impulse comes in in the states is like why give more money to the government they're already doing such a poor job with the things that they are doing um and and there's there's something to that i mean i think that's a little bit more of a libertarian approach um and to some degree that resonates with me i mean i think at the end of the day we can't trust the private sector with this money either. So it's, you know, it's, it's maybe a lesser of two evils situation in a lot of ways where I think the private sector is very good at some things, but some things that obviously cannot have its hands in. Um, we, we couldn't fully privatize uh, something like our uh, prison system or yeah. uh, even our healthcare, things like that, that are just going to be too open to corruption incentive structures, you know, crony capitalism, if you will, that we, we have to have certain things that that our uh, our government provides for us, but they just don't seem to be doing a great job here, which is is definitely definitely a, a major frustration of, of people across all um, parts of the political spectrum. But at the same time, I think, I guess just to jump back a little bit, I think it's interesting that you say you think that maybe this more Scandinavian model could work in the States um, because it's always something that I, I think about and I think probably has some validity, but I also have a fair degree of skepticism, almost more so from a place of ignorance because I've never been to these countries and have little exposure to them. And I've I've heard both sides of the argument. I've heard that they're very happy people, very content people. I, I've heard that there's a lot of really demotivated people who who don't feel like 
they have a lot of options or, or opportunity to pursue their their passions. Um, and I mean, I think that's that's to be expected on some level. And why a lot of people, maybe not so much from those countries, but from all over the world, come to America as the quote unquote land of opportunity where anyone can start a business at any time for any reason and potentially lift themselves out of poverty uh, and, and kind of have a limitless ceiling, which clearly has been incredibly attractive to the whole world for a very long time. Yeah. But at the same time, I think a big part of it that sometimes gets overlooked is what happens. Uh, let's just say we move towards a more Scandinavian model in the U.S. and we have enough of a collectivist culture, even though I, I'd say historically we have a very kind of rugged individualistic culture yeah. here in the States. Um, I think we're moving away from that more, and more so. And people can generally get on board. But one of the most practical problems is, OK, what happens to our billionaires? Um, and, and the classic answer is they leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we make it harder to make money here, to start to have a profitable business here, they'll just go to another country. And in a state like California that is dealing with a lot of problems right now because a lot of its very wealthy people, uh, people in Silicon Valley, are leaving and, and going to Texas because there's a better tax situation and they can instantly become more wealthy just by changing locations. But previously, these were the the base of their taxpayer dollars. Uh, and granted, of course, there's lots of billionaires or ultra-rich people who aren't paying taxes how they should, lots of loopholes. But for those that were, that was a large majority of the tax money in these yeah. states. So these people leave and you can't afford anything anymore. So the same deal... Uh, is relevant for the whole country that if on some level people stop coming here to create wealth uh, or those who create wealth here are like, hmm, I'd rather go um, someplace else where I can do more. I'll be less restricted. It's going to have downstream effects and you're going to have to continue to raise taxes to be able to keep the same standard of public services. So for me, it's kind of like you said, it, it, it depends on what is currently in place in the culture and in the U.S. right now, that is our big draw, is is that it is easy to create wealth here. And if that becomes more difficult, it's going to change our population on some level. And uh, that I don't know if it's something that is sustainable. And maybe it's, you know, to be fair, that's more of the conservative approach. So maybe people would stay. I mean, maybe more people would stay than we think. Maybe it wouldn't have huge consequences, but I think if we did anything extreme, uh, we did anything too swiftly, as we spoke to before, I think a lot of people would. And we've seen that already in the states between states mm-hmm. where we have this incredible agency here where you can you can go to any state that you want and have different tax laws, different rules. Yeah. You can find what your fit is. But there are emerging powers uh, across the globe who who have better situations or at least comparable situations to start businesses and for industry. So it's not like the U.S. has a monopoly on that anymore. And I think people who are really about their money and their businesses probably would really consider leaving if we had some sort of major public overhaul. But I could be wrong. But you know what I think is a big problem is that I do believe that the left is going to get into into power and going to to 
to be making decisions in the near future. And that's great. What I think that that is necessary is that the left need to be thinking about money a little bit and not just to take it from the ones who have it, but to keep and to take care of the conditions to create, to continue to create wealth. In Spain, for example, it cost me, I'm a, what you call in the States, I believe a contractor, I'm a freelance. Mm-hmm. And for me to have the right to give a client an invoice, I need to pay um, 320 euros a month to be able to be just be able (laughs) to make that invoice. If something goes wrong and I get sick and I'm unable to do my work and for a month, I don't send a single invoice to my clients. I still have to pay 320 Mm. euros. Then to form a business, the, 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 a company, uh, organization to, to get different conditions and to access loans, et cetera, et cetera. The cheaper, um, the cheaper way to do it is to form a cooperative. We cost you 300,000 years. Mm just to set it up and you continue paying the 320 a month. Even if you are producing, if you have zero revenue, because if you're you're starting, that's what it takes to start a business. You have this uh, period of fighting to start generating revenue. Mm. They don't care. You still pay 320 euros a month beside all the overhead you may have. So everyone lives, at least everyone who wants or who has the desire to have their own business, to be entrepreneurs, that they have any ideas. If you look at the the growing startups around the world, you will find none in Spain because Mm -hmm. the conditions aren't very beneficial. You have a, a single one. Uh, there is a software that is called Typeform that is to create uh, forms online. Mm. Very popular, even in the States. That's a Spanish company. Besides that, you don't have any startup. And you have very talented professionals here, but either they work for companies outside Spain or the mm. Because the conditions are said, you don't feel very motivated. When a they give you like, a, for me, when I started being a freelance, they gave me like a discount the, the, the first few months mm-hmm. and then 320. Yeah. That's, the, the, you, feel, you start feeling that the system is going to drag you down, that you don't have any support of the system to start your business, to, to grow, you need... You feel that besides the challenges that that are inherent of the market to the mm. market, you also have the challenge imposed by a system. Mm. You, you don't you feel like the government is the absolute enemy, and that push you away a little bit. If you have any expectation to have your own business, 
you don't see yourself doing it here. Mm. So what I mean by that is that they continue to create these social programs. They continue to give money to everyone. But I don't feel that they are contemplating where the money is going to come from in the near future. Mm-hmm. I think in that here in Spain, in the case of Spain, which isn't the same that the States, there is a large share of um, elderly who relies on the public system mm-hmm. and not enough young professionals paying for that. Right. At some point that is going to collapse. Mm-hmm. This happens in Japan, but I don't I don't know the how is the tax situation in Japan. I know that mm-hmm. they're having a crisis with the pension system, which is very similar to the one here because young people is is leaving mm-hmm. because the the conditions aren't set. So what I mean by this is that in the States the narrative and the discourse is let's take more money from the rich. Mm-hmm. which may be valid because there are too many loopholes that are being For used sure. by these rich people to not pay what is fair. But pushing pushing that too much is going to be counterproductive. You're going to lose very important uh, conditions for people to thrive and to create their own business, to generate more wealth. And then you are going to lose the opportunity to have those social programs because they mm. they cost money, right? And they don't talk about. I don't. I don't feel that there is enough discussion about creating opportunities to generate such wealth. We're only talking about let's take it from let's take the money from the ones who already have it. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely a huge part of the. Of the discourse, and, and as you said, it's it's clear that that things need to change, at least here in the states, in regards to our tax policy, in regards to how individuals and, and companies are able to easily navigate it. Um, and I think the you know a team of of hundreds of lawyers is always going to be able to outsmart the IRS, right? Yeah. I mean. It's you get these incredibly high powered, highly capable people here in the States and then you get a whole team of them for a company and then you put it against, you know, a, a public worker who is as as demotivated as anyone, at least here in America, someone who works in taxes. And we can't expect those people to be the ones who are able to yeah. really defend our the integrity of our system. Like we have to build it out in a way that that is more straightforward. Um, without making it so rigid that individuals, again, start looking around and saying, if we moved everything overseas tomorrow, would our bottom line be better? And um, as soon as that answer is yes, I think it will happen. So I think we, we always have to keep that in mind. And I think though most people would probably be very happy if they learn tomorrow that uh, Jeff Bezos or, or Elon Musk lost half of their wealth or had to give it, you know, to the public. I think most people would be very happy about that. Or if they received some sort of, you know, 90% tax rate or something, I think most people would kind of feel like that was a good thing 
and in some ways, I think it would do a lot of good, but at the same time, what is the cost? And if the cost is that people stop wanting to, to build companies like Amazon and, and Tesla and SpaceX and, and PayPal in, in this country, uh, I think the, the effects of that will be, will be very, very, very dire, uh, very quickly. And, uh, I think that's something that we very much want to avoid. And I don't think we're close to that. But yeah. at the same time, I think some of the policies that that Sanders and Warren were pushing for, who were strong political candidates on the left, despite their age, uh, were similar to, to some of the things I'm kind of jokingly saying. And I think a lot of young people were like, sure. You know, I think a lot of young people felt like it seemed fair because we have some sort of there is a growing sentiment that it is unfair that these people have these wealth, this wealth. They don't deserve it. It's impossible that they achieved it through ethical or decent means. And so kind of fuck them. And uh, I don't think we have the luxury as, as a country to have that attitude towards our wealthy people because yeah. they, they give us a lot. And it's, it's hard to say yeah. that because it's kind of uncomfortable, but our overall economy is what is what keeps us all fed, yeah. and they are the the backbone of that. Um, as are small businesses as well. I don't mean to be blind to that, but uh, small businesses feel these things too, and uh, we we have to keep that in mind, even if it seems like there's a lot of very swift radical change that would that would level the playing field a little bit more. Yeah, and you asked me before that what were the signs I was seeing, for example, here in Spain, that remind me to to the progressive decline of Venezuela, and what what I'm seeing there in the states, for from my perspective, in the distance, is that the politicians more than ever before are satanizing business people. Mm. Like, if you're a business person with some grade of success and you had built a fortune, you are the enemy. You are a bad person. Automatically, there is no, there is no pause to to see to question if that person built it's his or her business in an ethical, moral way. Just in the moment that we put them in the category of successful business person, we satanize them. They're the enemy. We need to go after them. It's starting to become a witch hunt. It is mm. here. The, the narrative against the private sector is very, very negative. Mm. If, you, if you aim to be a business person, there's something wrong with you. And that also reminds me a lot to Venezuela, where it was, you, you, you were evil to. In fact, Chavez has this very famous moment on TV saying that being rich is, is evil. Like if you have money, you're evil. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of ironic because no, now they are the ones who are rich and have absurd, obscene fortunes. Well, you know how it is. Mm -hmm. But it's starting to become the same thing here. And I kind of see it there in the States. Like, 
average people are starting to be very vocal about their the the hate they feel against business people which, oh yeah which is very weird to me and i don't feel that that's healthy at all because businesses provide uh, employment and growth not politicians i really hate when a politician even if it is one that i like when a politician say that he or she has created jobs politicians do not create jobs that's that's mm. a big um that's a lie and a stupid one because they don't create jobs the private sector create the jobs the, the business people even when a government create jobs we know how those jobs are in which <laughs> and the the kind of productive output they have which mm -hmm. is very limited so that's another signal of the ones you asked me before yeah i mean it's a it's a great point and i think uh, a wonderful place for us to to kind of start to bring this to a close but it's it it certainly is something that i think people ought to just just try to be aware of um, whenever it becomes anything that that really does look like uh, demonizing any group, regardless of what it is, I think that's a problem. Yep. And I think, again, when, when we have clear enemies, it seems easy. And I'm maybe a little, you might say, radical in that regard, right? I really think that it is a mistake to demonize anyone, um, to distance yourself from anyone's humanity, regardless of who they are or what they've done to you. But again, I'm a little radical in that sense. But at the end of the day, I think it is always a step in the wrong direction if we're starting to put unnecessary labels on people and decide that certain people don't deserve uh that certain people deserve less than others, whatever that looks like. And even if that's billionaires or that's people who we consider to be racist or that's people who have committed, you know, egregious crimes, I, I still think that it is a, a misstep. And uh, I'm sure something that you can relate to that it's the, the measuring stick just, it continues to change over time. And this is, you know, this is 101 of every, every overstep the left has ever seen is that it's, it started with the ultra wealthy and who was considered wealthy continued to change, who was considered problem, part of the problem continued mm -hmm. to change. It became educated people. It became talented people. Um, it became anyone uh, except, you know, the, the most common of people. And it just continued on, on across all sorts of lines. And then as soon as you become a part of that, that's when you see it. You say, okay, uh, now this is a problem, but it's too late once they're coming for you in some sense or demonizing you or, or taking away your humanity in any way is in, obviously you don't have a choice at that point because when you're clearly being put on the outside, that's a problem for you. But I think no one expects uh, the, the tides of progress to eventually turn back on them and say, okay, now you're part of the problem. You're part of the group mm -hmm. that is, is, uh, you're an oppressor now. And, uh, again, I'm, I'm hopeful that it doesn't happen here, but 
I think it's a small step in the wrong direction to do it to anyone. And I don't think people who think this way are ever satisfied with it. Right. I, I never think that it's like, even if we got rid of the, you know, the top five most wealthiest people, uh, most wealthy people in the world, if they had to give away 90% of their wealth, I don't think anyone would be satisfied. You know, it would just continue to shift. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we see that happening socially. We see that happening in, in smaller ways now, but it's, we're, we're continuing to point fingers at different groups and say, okay, these people are the problem. Uh, these people are uh, the ones that, that need to have less of a voice. And yeah. uh, again, it, it comes from a good place, I think, but it, it has a very dangerous trajectory yeah. and, that, and that has played out many, many times. Yeah, no, and don't get me wrong. Uh, I had to, I had to leave my country against my will. I wasn't happy about leaving Venezuela, mm. which makes me to have a very difficult uh, relationship with communism. But mm. beside, despite that, and I very honest with what with with this, I truly believe that communists are necessary and they should exist and if someone is aligned with those ideas go for it i, I support it 100 i mean everyone we, we should leave any anyone behind because of their set of ideals and morals and only if they directly attacked the well-being of someone okay but I think we are necessary. I don't think that we should demonize any any groups, as, as you are saying. Even if you have suffered any consequences related to that group of people, you still need to you still know, need those individuals in your society to play mm -hmm. a balance. In any way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But. Uh... Yeah, yeah. To, to sum it up, I, I really do appreciate you making time for this. I know it's getting a little late there uh, in Spain, but uh, yeah, it's it's honestly been an, uh, an awesome conversation. I, I don't often get to, to get into these issues on this level, especially with someone who has such a unique perspective like you and and also just, just talking about it because I know mm -hmm. from what you're saying, it's not something that is easy for you to talk about publicly and it's not something that's necessarily encouraged to have this sort of conversation, you know, in your, in your current climate. So I, I just appreciate you doing that and uh, making time for it. No, thank you for inviting me. It's true. It's a, bit, it's a little bit late, but just in time for dinner here in Spain. <laughs> in, in the evening. So it's perfect. Thank you so much for, for the time, for inviting me. I really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, of course. And I'll certainly, uh, I'll have you back on soon because there's uh there's much to talk about and the world is always changing so we'll yeah, we'll see that. fingers crossed uh, <laughs> but maybe uh maybe next time something big happens and in, in one of the countries uh, at, at hand that we've talked about today we'll, we'll hop back on and, and see if we can get into it we'll see we'll see thank you very much yeah thanks y'all for joining